Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Hello and welcome back. This week we're looking at how many lives are cut short by diesel emissions around the world. And how a few error-prone bots can help humans work together. We'll also take a look at how caterpillars do digestion differently. This is The Nature Podcast for May the 18th, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Carrie Smith. Inside your gut and mine and every human's is a bustling community of millions of microbes our microbiome. This community of bacteria helps us digest food, they chase away bad bugs, and they're also a high fashion choice of research topic. Microbiomes are really hot right now. Toby Hammer is at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Almost every day there's a new study showing how the microbiome can be super important to a particular aspect of animal biology. Even my mom, my grandma have heard, have read about the microbiome. Toby doesn't study human gut bugs. He studies bug gut bugs, insect microbiomes. Specifically, he's interested in the microbes inside caterpillars. Caterpillars turn into butterflies and moths, which is a pretty dramatic lifestyle change that interests lots of biologists. They're also an important crop pest. For his PhD, Toby decided to look at the microbiomes of over 100 species of caterpillar, sampled from Costa Rica, Colorado and New England. He collected or had sent to his lab samples of caterpillar poo, often used as a proxy for a microbial community. He passed everything through a sensitive sequencer and watched what came out. His team just posted their report to the preprint server BioArchive. Going into the project, I was really interested in why different species of caterpillar would maybe have different microbiomes and how that relates to what plants they feed on. I was expecting them to have a normal microbiome, like every other animal that I was aware of. But when Toby and his colleagues looked at their samples, a normal microbiome is not what they found. You know, the more samples I ran, the more it seemed like the main result would actually be that they don't have much of a gut microbiome. So that, it was a surprise to me. This is not what Toby expected. Nowadays, he says, everyone just assumes that every animal has a microbiome. 
Well, almost everyone assumes this. My name is John Sanders. I'm a postdoc with Rob Knight at the UC San Diego. John Sanders studies the evolution of microbiomes and their hosts and has a particular soft spot for ants. He wasn't surprised to see Toby's results because his own experiments point the same way. Back when he was doing his PhD, he stuck a few ants under the microscope. And sort of by chance, I happened to look at a couple other ants we had laying around the lab. And I thought that I was messing up somehow because I didn't see any bacteria in those ant guts at all. To me, that was just very surprising. I had sort of assumed that there would always be bacteria in guts. Being less reliant on a team of bugs could be good news for a caterpillar. After all, Toby says, their main goal is to pile on simple nutrients as fast as they can before their fleeting adult life begins. The human microbiome helps us digest our more complex diet, but maybe a mass of bugs would hinder a grub nibbling on plants. The caterpillar stage is when they acquire the vast majority in often all of the nutrients that they need for uh, growth and for reproduction. So it's a really critical stage in their life cycle. Um, And for a lot of groups, they don't actually feed at all as adults. Any microbial growth that's harvesting those nutrients, then you're essentially competing with microbes in your gut for nutrients. So if you can exclude microbial growth, then you don't need to share those nutrients with your microbiome. You can keep them uh, all to yourself. Knowing more about the bug's own bugs could help scientists working in pest control. Caterpillars can damage crops such as maize and fruit trees and stored food such as grains. One important chemical actually acts on the gut. This Bt pesticide that is so widely used in agriculture actually seems to work not by direct toxicity on the insects themselves, on the caterpillars, but sort of by like making their guts leaky and allowing bacteria that happen to be there to kind of get into the host's uh, bloodstream, essentially, and take over and kill the, kill the insect that way. Unfortunately, the new finding might mean that pesticides like this wouldn't work so well on caterpillars without bacteria-loaded guts. But, says Toby... I think it's at least important in understanding these pests, and maybe the lack of a gut microbiome could inform new strategies um, for controlling caterpillars. When Toby looked back through the old literature on caterpillars, he did find some reports that they were missing a microbial community. Before, you know, this current microbiome era, it wasn't particularly interesting if an animal didn't have a microbiome. And what's changed is, I think, our expectation now that that's the norm, that everything has a microbiome and lots of aspects of animal biology are mediated by microbes. That was PhD student Toby Hammer of the University of Colorado. His research report is available on bioarchive.org. That's spelled B-I-O-R-X-I-V. You also heard from John Sanders of the University of California, San Diego. There's a news story about the research available now for free at nature.com slash news. Later on, sex-specific asthma and the earliest life on Earth. That's in the research highlights, but before we get to that, reporter Anand Jagatir is here to explain how it might be good to have a little bit of noise mixed in with your signal. Noise is usually a bad thing. Huh, that's true in everyday life and in science, where it's defined as meaningless data that accompanies the information we actually want. But there are situations where noise can be good, 
For example, in evolution, genetic mutation is a kind of noise, and it gives natural selection something to play with. And when you're searching for information, a bit of error can be beneficial. Down at the library, it could be the book next to the one you pick that turns out to be really useful. Nicholas Christakis directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale University. He's been looking at the effect of noise on human coordination, and he's discovered that it can actually help people perform better on group tasks. I asked him to explain the challenge he gave to his volunteers. Well, what we did here is we had a group of people, about twenty people, and they were playing a classic coordination game. In this game, every person is dropped into a network and they're introduced to their neighbors, and each of them is told they have to pick a color that's different than their neighbors. They have to coordinate their color selection with their neighbors. So everyone, every second or so, is switching their colors around, and at some point they might say, "Well, I picked the color that's not in conflict with any of my neighbors." And in fact, everyone in the network might feel that way, or they pick the best color they can pick, and yet the group as a whole hasn't solved the problem. You also see this, for example, in firms. So you might have a situation in which every subdivision within a firm thinks that they've optimized their job. You know, engineering thinks it's done its job, and marketing thinks it's done its job, and sales thinks they've done their job. But actually, the the firm as a whole is not performing. Right. So I guess this is the idea that at a local level, people might be doing the right thing and doing a sensible job, but because they can't see the bigger picture, you know, on a global level, things just aren't working out optimally. Yeah, they only have local knowledge. They only can see what they are doing and what their neighbors are doing. But what we did in this experiment is, is we. In a kind of sneaky way, replace some of the humans with bots. And furthermore, what we did is, is we we introduced what we call a kind of dumb AI. So what we did is, is we made these little bots a little bit noisy. So if we made perfect bots and the bots played the color coordination game to perfection, it actually made the groups worse off. And if we made the bots too noisy, so they were constantly making errors, it actually also made the groups worse off. But if we gave the bots a little bit of noise, it unlocked these kind of local optima, these kind of ways in which people solve the problem locally but didn't solve it globally. Adding a little bit of noise to those bots actually helped the groups to converge on a solution. So, so a little bit of noise, so adding mistakes, actually helped people from when they were kind of stuck in these situations where they were gridlocked and you know everybody thought they were doing the right thing. That's right. One of the things you also mention in the paper is that the bots, by kind of trying out these different,、um, making these tiny mistakes, kind of encouraged people around them to do the same thing. Yes, that's right. I mean, what we found is that the bots, in addition to making the life easier of the humans to whom they were connected, also actually changed the behavior of the humans among themselves. So they led to a cascading benefits. So not only did the bots. Facilitate the task for the people to whom they were directly connected, but actually those people then, in interacting with further individuals, changed their way of playing, and as a result, the whole group was able to work better together. And in some ways, this is evocative of a kind of teaching function of artificial intelligence. And what we're interested here is the use of artificial intelligence not in in replacing individuals. But rather in affecting the network interactions among groups of individuals, what's the role of artificial intelligence not in our cognition but in our social interaction?
So obviously in real life, we don't go around trying to coordinate coloured dots with our neighbours. You know, could you give an example of, of a network where maybe you could put some kind of bot or some kind of artificial intelligence that you could add some noise into the system and it could be beneficial? We are in the point of transition right now between a world in which humans interact solely with each other and a world in which machines interact solely with each other. And we're going to have a transition period in which humans and machines are interacting on the same plane. One of my favorite examples of this might be to consider what's going to happen when we have autonomous vehicles on the road. And it might not be the case that we want the machines to uh, work perfectly, for example. We might want to understand a world in which humans and machines are interacting on a, on a level playing field and explore ways in which the AI with which those machines are equipped could be optimized, given the fact that they are interacting not just with other machines, but also with humans. I mean, this is a very unscientific way of putting it, but it kind of seems like you're saying that if we want to put machines into situations where they can interact with humans, we have to kind of make them a bit more human-like and less machine-like. We have to make them perhaps make more mistakes. I'm hesitant to leap too far beyond our data, but I do think one can imagine that we, we don't want machines to be perfect. In fact, in our own experiments, we found that if we made the machines perfect in several ways, it was harmful. For instance, the computers could instantaneously change their colors. And we found if we, they did that, it annoyed the hell out of the humans. So, they, <laughs> so we had to slow the machines down so that they played at the tempo that humans played. And furthermore, we found that if we made the machines always pick the optimal a color, that is to say the color that had the fewest conflicts with its neighbors, we once again found that that degraded the performance of the group. So that actually we needed to add a little noise to these bots. And when we added a little noise, we found that actually they helped the humans to unlock their own potential and not get stuck in these local, local minima. That was Anand Jagatir talking to Nicholas Christakis, who's at Yale University in Connecticut. There's also a News and Views article about the study. Both can be found at nature.com forward slash nature. Stay tuned for the news. The Bronze Age equivalent of going viral and century-old cancer samples get sequenced. But now it's the research highlights, read by Corrie Locke. The earliest life on Earth may have sprung from hot springs. Researchers studied rocks from Western Australia that were first formed 3.5 billion years ago. These rocks contain some of the earliest evidence for life. The researchers found deposits called geyserite, which are produced by hot springs on land. Near these deposits were layered rock structures called stromatolites, which are signatures of microbial life. The researchers conclude that life on land may have emerged near hot springs about 600 million years earlier than previously thought. Find out more from the journal Nature Communications. Asthma is more common in boys than girls, but after puberty, this trend reverses, with women being affected more than men. Researchers think that they have come up with a possible biological basis for this, at least in mice. They found that male sex hormones, like testosterone, inhibit the development of a specific type of immune cell in mice. In humans, these cells help to trigger asthma and other allergic inflammatory responses. The research team found that male mice had fewer of these immune cells and were less likely to develop inflammation in their airways than female animals. You can find the study in the Journal of Experimental Medicine.
Whatever your sex, asthma can be made worse if you live somewhere with polluted air. In cities, vehicles belch out many harmful pollutants, with diesel vehicles a particular culprit. Some cities are even considering banning diesel vehicles altogether. Adam takes a look at how big a problem diesel is and how difficult it is to measure diesel emissions. There's a study out this week that's painting a global picture of diesel emissions. It estimates that about 110,000 premature deaths a year are down to particular gases emitted by diesel cars, buses and trucks. That's in the context of 3 million deaths annually from all sources of air pollution. Countries around the world already have regulations in place to limit diesel pollution. But as lead author Susan Annenberg explains, vehicles driving on our streets often exceed these limits. Most vehicle markets around the world are regulating diesel emissions, but we do still have a problem where some of these regulations are allowing higher real-world emissions so the higher emissions under real-world driving conditions as compared to what the vehicles are showing during emissions testing for certification. Of course, tests don't always reflect the real world. That's not a surprise, and there are many reasons diesel engines might behave differently in tests than under real use. If an engine isn't properly maintained, for example, it may end up above the lab limit. Or engines may be affected by different weather conditions. It could be simply deficient certification test procedures that are non-representative of real-world driving conditions. A typical test for emissions monitors a cocktail of pollutants coming out from a vehicle's exhaust, while the vehicle travels at set speeds in set conditions. A far cry, then, from the variation that would be experienced in the real world. Susan's study focused on nitrogen oxides, known as NOx for short. And extra NOx emissions will cause extra human health problems. We wanted to know what are the public health implications of all diesel trucks, buses and and cars emitting nitrogen oxide emissions under real world uh, conditions. And to do this, we had to get a sense for the real world emissions coming from individual vehicles. So we first developed new emission factors for all different types of diesel vehicles, cars, trucks, and buses in all different regions. These emissions factors are used to work out how much vehicles emit in various circumstances. The team then took this information and used it to work out how much excess NOx diesel vehicles are responsible for around the world. Nobody can measure every single vehicle, so to get this estimate... You really have to do a considerable amount of extrapolation. This is Dan Carter director of the Center for Alternative Fuels, Engines and Emissions at West Virginia University. You need to be very careful that the activity that you're measuring and that the emissions from those activities are truly able to represent a global fleet. Dan Carter knows how demanding it can be to get the right data on diesel vehicles. It was his team's tests that revealed certain Volkswagen diesel cars were way over the NOx limits. Now, the Volkswagen emissions were so high because Volkswagen was actively cheating emissions tests. There's no reason to suspect most other car companies of this kind of foul play. But Dan's experience shows how important it is to check vehicles aren't exceeding limits in real-world conditions, even if they've passed tests. Looking across 11 different regions, Susan and her colleagues were able to work out how much NOx pollution is out there, and how much of it is in excess of the limits. 
about one-third of all diesel NOx emissions within these 11 major vehicle markets are in excess of certification standards. So it follows that about one-third of the health ramifications of diesel NOx emissions are due to those excess emissions. One-third of the health impacts of diesel vehicle NOx emissions could have been avoided if these vehicles emitted the same levels in the real world as they show during certification testing. That's 38,000 premature deaths a year. So if excess emissions are such a problem across the industry, does that mean it's not even possible to get emissions under the limits? It is possible. Based on the in-use emission testing studies, there are some vehicles that, that are performing under those emission limits. So this is not a question of technical feasibility. So this is a problem that is, is fixable. Susan points out that there are already more stringent tests in some countries that do pretty well at keeping real-world emissions to the limits. But Dan Carter isn't convinced tests will ever fully capture the complexities of driving conditions out on the roads. I don't think you'll ever find a perfect uh, scenario either in the laboratory or in the real world. You know, even when you introduce these new real-world approaches, your cycles are still somewhat contrived. Dan imagines that future tests could one day use miniature sensors on whole fleets of cars to crowdsource real-world emissions data. But he finds this current study eye-opening. He usually just thinks about what comes out of engines, not what happens when these pollutants enter people's lungs. Coming from you know, my perspective, we tend to find ourselves always searching for the next technology in hopes of reducing emissions. And I think one of the things that we don't get to see enough of in my little world is what that health impact is. And the health impacts of adopting better tests around the world could be huge. Susan's study estimates that better testing could save around 170,000 lives a year by 2040. And she says that we're finally beginning to see some countries moving towards more stringent testing that better captures what vehicles do in the real world. So I am optimistic that in the coming years we'll see some improvements towards reducing real-world diesel NOx emissions. That was Susan Annenberg, partner at Environmental Health Analytics, which is a consultancy firm in Washington, D.C. You also heard from Dan Carter, who's at West Virginia University in the U.S. Susan's paper is in the usual place. News now, and I'm joined in the studio by Richard Van Norden, European Bureau Chief. Hi, Richard. Hi, Kerry. Long time no see. Yeah, it's good to be back here. Now, first, uh, the Bronze Age equivalent of something kind of going viral, a pottery craze called the Bell Beaker culture. That's made it into the news section this week. Yeah, we're back in the Bronze Age, 4,500 years ago, when, yes, this bizarre fad uh, for bell-shaped pottery swept across prehistoric Europe all the way across to uh, Spain and Portugal and as far east as Hungary. And archaeologists have been debating what this craze has told them. For more than a century, they've wondered about this. Does it just mean that this was the Bronze Age's hottest fashion, that different groups of people shared these ideas and started making these bell-shaped pots? Or is it evidence for an immense migration of beaker folk across the continent? And for listeners who obviously can't see the lovely picture that you have in print of these pots, could you just describe what they are for us? Yeah, it's a piece of pottery uh, decorated and it looks a bit like a, a bell with a sort of curved bottom and you basically use it probably for drinking. 
Um, and these were found in burials all over Europe, along with other things that kind of define this nebulous bell beaker culture. Uh, there's copper daggers, there's flints. It's not exactly clear that it was one culture. Some people call it the bell beaker phenomenon because they don't want to say that there was one distinct culture involved. So as you said, archaeologists have been looking at this question for decades. Did the people who made the pots spread and therefore the pots themselves spread or did their ideas spread without them? And now a new genetic analysis. It turns out that ancient genomes are giving us the answer. And there's a study posted to BioArchive, the preprint server, that analyzes genomes from an enormous 170 ancient Europeans and then compares that to hundreds of other genomes of ancient and modern Europeans. Now, this genome analysis has shown that uh, in Europe, uh, skeletons who are found buried with these artifacts are actually quite genetically distinct. There's no evidence that, as has been proposed, there's a, a wellspring of beaker folk in Iberia, Spain and Portugal that migrated across the rest of Europe. Uh, not at all. So it looks like it was people sharing ideas and they all just loved making these newfangled pots. But uh, in Britain, there seems to be evidence for an, an invasion or a migration of beaker folk that came in and seemed to have, within a few hundred years, completely displaced the Neolithic farmers who were there. And these are the farmers who built Stonehenge and these, these famous relics. Um, but it looks like that by about 2000 BC... They've been replaced uh, by other groups who, according to this study, look like they were these uh, beaker folk. And the beakers, I love how, by the way, how many times you've said beaker folk with a completely straight face. So well done for that. Um, these are being used as like a proxy, basically, for a culture. And so the arche so archaeologists who've been studying this have had a hard time choosing between these two hypotheses. Would that be right? Exactly, because uh, it's very confusing. Um, the beakers aren't found everywhere. It's sort of discontinuous clumps of where you find them. And there's this enormous range. It's, it's tricky to know what's going on. Now, it doesn't mean that archaeologists are going to say, great, problem solved. And some of them are a bit uh, sniffy about some of this study. I mean, they agree there's evidence for a migration into Britain. Uh, but the idea that these in, inward migrators completely displace the Neolithic farmers. They say, well, in the archaeological record, they're not sure about that. The DNA may say that when you look at later people, there's very little of the Neolithic left in the DNA. But archaeologically, there doesn't seem to be such a, a huge split. And they suggest that as um, cremation arose around the time of the Bronze Age and the middle of Bronze Age, that may have um, cleared away a lot of the bones and evidence that if we could only sample them, would show actually there was a lot more Neolithic DNA involved in later people in Britain. We're going to confine ourselves to history for the next story, uh, but only in the last hundred or so years, because cancer researchers in London have been looking to history to find more samples of very rare cancers. Yeah, this is uh, in London at Great Ormond Street Hospital, founded uh, in 1852, on the back of donations raised by Charles Dickens, in fact. And um, there's a lot of samples a huge 165-year-old archive of samples and patient records in this hospital. Um, and many of them are these childhood tumours stored uh, in the paraffin wax cubes with all the patient numbers handwritten on the sides, going back, uh, as I say, more than a century. Why would that be useful to a modern cancer biologist? So the problem is that there are very few tumour samples from rare cancers that are available for modern researchers to sequence. We talked to Sam Berjati, uh, he's at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute in Hingston, and he says 
And the treatment regimens for children with rare cancers are essentially made up. If you've got three or four patients in the whole country, how are you ever going to conduct a reasonable clinical trial, figure out what treatments may or may not help treat certain mutations? So he dug into the archive of the Great Ormond Street Hospital and picked out three samples that are a century old and showed that they could, first of all, agree with the the diagnosis of those samples. He picked out a muscle cancer, a blood vessel tumour and a lymphoma and then extracted DNA and sequenced hundreds of genes in each slice that they pulled of 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 this tumour. Uh, And indeed, they could find the cancer-associated mutations in the samples, suggesting that there's a a rich vein there, not just at Great Ormond Street Hospital, but at the archives of other hospitals for these um, relics of childhood cancers. The genomes of adult cancers often have hundreds of mutations, whereas the genomes of childhood cancers tend to contain far fewer alterations. So you can much more easily home in on the most important mutations and sift through the, the background noise of degraded DNA. Richard, anything else that listeners should be aware of in this week's news section? Yeah, for our listeners who haven't heard enough about Donald Trump, we lead on his proposed budget for 2018, but we look specifically at what he's proposing to cut in science. And interestingly, how that could hurt his own supporters. We look at the science projects that are in the so-called red states, the Republican states. For example, we talk about the Gulf of Mexico, where a fish called the red snapper has made a comeback. US government regulations have rebuilt the fish stocks. But Trump wants to eliminate a Mississippi-based Sea Grant program that's overseeing a massive study of red snapper stocks and is supposed to guide future management decisions and protect this fishery that hauls in billions of dollars for these Republican-dominated Gulf states. Great. Richard Van Orden, thank you very much for coming in. More on each of those stories, which are by Alexandra Witsey, that's the uh, Red States analysis. Heidi Ledford wrote about the old tumour samples, and Ewan Calloway has been looking at the migration of the ideas of the Beaker people, all on nature.com slash news. That's all we have time for this week. But for more from us, make sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at Nature Podcast. Or you can find my personal tweets at Climate Adam. And mine at Minnie Kerry. See you next week. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.